So as far as we know, um, and we don't really know this with any scholarly accuracy, it's kind of, a, it's kind of speculation on everybody's part, but as far as we know, um, early Buddhism was characterized by this kind of um, sort of maybe categorical programmatic thinking, right? So, you know, if you, if you read the Pali Canon, which, is, which was the latest version of the, or the earliest version of the Pali Canon that we have on, on record was written well over a thousand years after the life of Buddha, right? But, but it, you know, that, nonetheless, um, you, I guess you could say that there was a, there's a, there's a really big comprehensive statement of the, of the nature of Buddhist thought that contains this kind of um, categorical and programmatic thinking in bucket loads, right? So I, I've, I know I've talked about this, um, this before. There's this marvelous, um, marvelous sutta in the Diga Nikaya, it's a, it's a classic, and it basically, um, this king comes to the Buddha and says, why would anyone want to be a Buddhist, basically, that's what he says. <laughs> and the, the Buddha gives this precise, comprehensive, and also kind of marvelous explanation, right, um, that, that, you know, kind of leans on on his other teachings, but basically um, emphasizes two things. Um, uh, you know, um, like mindful introspection, right? And the, the fruits of mindful introspection. And that combined and interacting with uh, adherence to the precepts, right? The, the moral precepts. And he says, th those are the main fruits of, that's, that's, those are the main reasons why you'd want to be a Buddhist. <laughs> um, and he, and you know, it's a great document. It's really, really good, right? Um, and the other documents we have in hand that are kind of early-ish are, you know, after a while, you know, I, th I think in, everybody's pretty much agreed that initially Buddhists were, um, were, renunciate mendicant wanderers in the tradition, in the Indian tradition of, uh, I think it's Shamana, um, where people would just leave home and drop everything and go off into the world and, and engage in spiritual practices, right? Um, which they do to this day, actually, which is marvelous. And over time, I think that became less practical. Although I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not much of a historian, so I'm not sure exactly what the what the factors were. But over time, being a Buddhist became a lot more like being a grad student, right? Like you'd, you'd go to this to an institution and you'd live there and you'd um, you'd, have, you'd debate people and you'd study and read these giant, these massive texts and so on and so forth. And you'd probably you know, go to the student union and have a coffee <laughs> and argue about Buddhism with your friends, right? But um, in any case, um, the other thing that those people did was they wrote a 
hell of a lot, right? And we have a lot of literature from that era, and it's and it's 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 marvelous in the sense that one of the things that they did, the the, the largest of these these schools, um, the or you know, you know, denominations, sects, or whatever, um, what were called the Sarvastivadins, right? And and They came up with this this sort of schema, this you know categorical, highly dualistic um, list, you know, list after bulleted list after bulleted bulleted list schema that was in, that it was intended as a description of human subjectivity, right, from the from the ground up. So it, and it covered all the stuff that we were just talking about. So, you know, you you're you have sensory hardware um, and there are there are objects in the world and, and also crows just to be clear right and and uh, and and there are there are moments of contact in the world of form that have to do with energy generated by the crows landing on your eardrums and and all the rest of that sort of thing right and and they cause sensations to to arise and 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 then those some of those sensations, depending on this kind of, they had a they had a sort of two dimensional graph, um, which is in in on one dimension it was pleasant and unpleasant, and on the other dimension it was boring, exciting, right? <laughs> and depending on where you were on that plane, the the sensation what is was likely or unlikely to arise into perception. Like and the 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 usual assumption was that you know ninety per something percent of the sensations we experience go completely unheeded by uh, by our mind. But when a sensation arises into the in into your awareness then all of a sudden, it it, um, it it does this thing that we're also presumably exploring earlier, which was is um, it it's played out against this this thing that they called back in the day um, the storehouse consciousness, right? Um, uh, and. I think it's I think it's in Sanskrit it's alaya vishnana or something like that and the um, it, the storehouse consciousness contained was essentially is, is described pretty handily as an associative memory that that that's accessible through pattern experience and and pattern matching right and and then and it it produces you know, recognition, suggestions of pattern behavior, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in, in response to uh, perceptions, right? And and then all of this takes place in, in all this, everything above the level of sensation takes place in the light of this, um, this kind of oddly inexplicable self-awareness, right? Um, and so that was those are that was the basis of their scheme. And but you know, so that's you know, if you if you did a presentation on that, a PowerPoint presentation on that, it would be like, you know, you know, a handy three to five slides and it would have a few bullet points. They in their in the the Abhidharma, which is the name of the document that contained all this, they had 
bullet points and sub-bullet points and sub-sub-sub-bullet points all the way down out to here, right? And it was very, very detailed. And there were, you know, 27 stages of a thought and so on and so forth. It was really, it was remarkable, right? And they, they I would say they did a very good job of it. Um, and the, the, you know, for all the, all the people that were in kind of Buddhist grad school, the idea was this was kind of a science and, and these things were all real and you would, um, uh, you, your, your role as a Buddhist was to study them and also add to the knowledge of how it worked, right? That would, and so it was kind of like science, right? Um, and so that was one very large piece of, you know, sort of categorical dualistic thinking. And, and on the other side of this scale, there were Buddhist sects that were, that were essentially naive nihilists, right? They were like, no, none of this stuff is true. <laughs> they, they had all the explanations like, oh, it's just like mind playing with mind. Nobody, they didn't really say much about whose mind, but they, you know, it was just mind playing with mind, right? Um, it was just a dream. That's often, often these sects use the, use the dreaming mind as a model for, um, for the unreality of our experience, right? And so these people would argue and famously you'd get a debating team from one side and a debating team from the other side and they'd come in and they'd argue and whoever was voted to have won the debate would get out, would get to go out and run a flag up the flagpole in front of the university to uh, let everyone know that they'd won. You know, so tonight the, the nihilist won and the, you know, in a week maybe the, the, um, the scientists will win, right? But in any case, that went on for a while and then people kind of got sick of it and nobody really knows how this happened um, the, because the because the the document the, the this process happened in the first few centuries before the common era and there are some documents but they're not very comprehensive and there're not that many of them and most of the documents we have are actually um either translations or records of translations into Chinese of documents written in Sanskrit, supposedly during this period, but they, they would have been translated 500 years after the original documents were written. So is that really true? We don't really know, right? Um, but um, th there's, a, there's some mythology about it, which is probably worth talking about. Um, so supposedly the Buddha once while they, he was still alive, sat down. Um, this, this, this would have been hundreds of years before any of this happened, right? Um, sat down in front of a huge assembly of people and, um, and he was about to give a talk and instead of giving a talk, he, he emitted this brilliant light and he flew up into the sky and he landed in heaven and instead he gave the talk to his mom. And he, and he did this every day for about two weeks. And then every day he would come back down at the end of the day and he'd go up to his, his most sort of philosophically gifted disciple who was a person named Shariputra and he would say, okay, here's what I talked about today. And he'd kind of you know, give a really brief explanation of it. And then he'd go to bed and wake up in the morning and, and do it again. Right? And, and so nobody knew what 
you know, he said to his mom, um, but, uh, but eventually it came out that it was recorded by these serpent spirits called the Nagas, right? Um, and they, one day this guy named Nagarjuna, right, or Nagarjuna, was walking down the street and these snakes came after him and they're like, psst, right? And, and he's like, what? And, and they said, and they, they, he follows them and they go into this underground cavern full of water and there under the water are these books of, of, the, uh, um, of the scriptures, right? Of the, of the things that, that the Buddha said to his mom, basically. And they said, okay, you can take these now. And, and he takes them and there's a bunch of other stuff, parts of the story, but basically he ends up with these, with these documents that are, that are the, the Mahayana teachings, right? Um, and, and in some ways, it's, that's as good an explanation as any, but because honestly, um, nobody knows what really happened. But Nagarjuna is credited at least with writing this really incredibly dense um, and really like blessedly short. The only reason why it's not just a, a you know, total, you know, like, I don't know, like brain killer is that it's actually pretty short. But basically what he does in it is he holds up the Sarvastivadin view, which is that all this stuff is sort of naively real, right? And he holds up the nihilist view and he says, they're both wrong, right? And that if you look at the, the, the basic axioms in, in Buddhist philosophy, one of which is that the whole world arises together in this interconnected way that, that um, is, is continuous and gives rise to, among other things, karma, but also just gives rise to the world, right? Um, if, you, if you take that and a few other basic principles of Buddhism, you, it must be the case that none of the categories that the Sarvastivadins were talking about um, are really accurate, and also that the nihilists also have to be wrong, right? Um, and so, so and th this, and this document was called something like the virtue of the middle way, which is, um, you know, because it, it was the middle, right? Um, and th that's one of the founding documents of, um, of Mahayana Buddhism, but there's a whole bunch of other documents. And for example, well, there's, a, there's this famous sutra called the uh, Avatamsaka Sutra, which is, in, in my view, almost illegible, but it has this, it has this marvelous metaphor in it of Indra's net. Has anybody heard of Indra's net? It's like, for those who don't know it, it's like the, the universe is this, is this network of jewels, right? And each jewel reflects every other jewel perfectly. And so there's this infinite regress of reflection at every point in the net. And the net covers the entire universe throughout space and time, right? Um, pretty great. And not a bad description of the universe, right? It's, it, but, but what it underlines is that, that our attempts to corral and understand the universe using, you know, the, you know, okay powers of our mind are all doomed to failure, right? Um, you, you know, you, you can use that as a metaphor, but to, to, to see into it any deeper than that is, is actually quite difficult, right? And 
another document and famous Mahayana document is the Heart Sutra, which also has the virtue of being incredibly short and pretty readable, actually. Um, but it basically says, the, the Bodhisattva of great compassion, Avalokiteshvara, was, was meditating one day and he realized that, that um, all of that stuff that the Sarvastivadins talking about, were talking about was empty. That is to say, it doesn't, didn't have any independent um, reality or self-nature, right? And he says, so there's no, no world of form, there's no sensations, there's no perceptions, there's no mental formations, there's no consciousness. And then he goes down to the sensory level and says there's no eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. Um, and then the sensory realms, the realm of sight, the realm of sound, et cetera, et cetera. He, he just takes it all apart. And then he gets to the the primary Buddhist teachings, he says there's no Four Noble Truths, there's no Eightfold Path, there's no Twelvefold Chain of Causation. All that stuff is, it's not like, it's not provisionally useful, it just doesn't have any independent reality, right? Um, and so that was the advent and the, and the primary contribution to Buddhist philosophical and conceptual thought, and it you know happened like I said, like around started around the beginning of the common era, and then to the extent that Nagarjuna was a real person, he's supposed to have lived I think sometime in the uh, maybe between the third and fourth century or something like that. I forget exactly when, but. Um, and, and right about then, interestingly, is when Buddhism was spreading rapidly into Central Asia and also East Asia into China and so on. And so there was this, there was this cultural ferment that undoubtedly bore upon this development, right? And so you'd think that um, Mahayana Buddhism would not be particularly categorical, right? But it turns out it's totally not true. It has just as many schemas and categorical, you know, and programmatic, um, it's just as much programmatic device like there's this, you know, six paramitas and the, there's the five ranks and there's the four, you know, beneficial states of mind and it just goes on and on and on like this. And I think the conclusion that we can all draw from that is that fundamentally we're explainers, right? And, you know, I mean, so the, um, and we need a conceptual framework to, to help us engage with, it, with our experience. And, you know, we were just doing it when we were sitting, right? That's what we were doing. We were, we were taking our built-in conceptual framework and using it to um, identify, explain, and make up stories about the sounds of the crows or the, you know, the guy on the motor scooter and all the rest of that sort of thing, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the sounds of crows, I just see these birds going like, <laughs> I, I, make, I make a cartoon of it, which is, you know, embarrassing, but it's kind of true, right? Um, so we're explainers, and our... What do you think the components of a satisfactory explanation are? Any, uh, any um, <laughs> thoughts about that? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, internal coherence. 
Yeah, that's really good, right? Um, the, it need it needs to be it needs to be internally coherent, which means it has to it often often that means it's internally linguistically explicable as a not always, but often it means it's internally linguistically explicable as a as a, as a narrative or a at least a sentence, right, or something like that. But yes, absolutely, I think that's right. Yeah, um, we we wish for um, internal coherence. What else? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think that's also right. We and and you can see how that's kind of a um, that's a that's. That's a warning sign. Right? In a world where nothing is actually self-contained, the, the fact that ex explanations want to be self-contained might give you pause, right? But yes, I think that's exactly right. And then you, you would... Yeah. Yeah. What else? Touches something intuitive. Yeah, and, and, so, and, and uh, to add on to that, I'll, I'll say... One of the manifestations of that intuitive connection is conviction, right? So we, we have a sense of, we, when we have an explanation that's internally coherent, that's self-contained, that, that we can hold in place, and, and you know, like, like my cartoons of the crows and so on and so forth, right? And, um, and, and we, can, we can experience that kind of, that kind of connection with it. it it brings up a conviction that it must be true, right? Um, and and that's you can see how that's completely necessary. Like if we if you got up in the morning and you were like I'm getting out of bed, it's like is the floor there? Maybe the floor's not there. <laughs> you'd really, you'd really kind of, you wouldn't even make it to the kitchen to start your first cup of coffee, right? Basically, if if that was the way it was, it's like, do I have a left foot? Do I have a right foot? Um, is my head on the top or the bottom of my body, right? Um, so it's it's necessary. But it can, but it can lead to um, delusive um, well conviction in the presence of incomplete information or or willful ignorance in the sense of willful willfully ignoring the facts because you don't want them to be true. Right? Is that is essentially the definition of delusion, right? Um, and and one of the one of one of the the source, sources of conviction in the in the Mahayana world is that we're all continuously and infinitely self-deluding. <laughs> Um, which is, it's sobering, but the, the vow says, delusions are inexhaustible, which is to say I'm continuously and infinitely self-deluding, but I vow to end all my delusions, right? So th that's just setting yourself up for an eternity of working with your delusions. Right? Um, 
So, and, and then the other thing it can lead to, interestingly, is it, it, can, it can lead to a kind, of, a kind of positive delusion, or it can lead to nihilism, right? It can lead to a kind of, kind of um, yeah, you know, sort of Darth Vader-y, um, everything, you know, nothing is real, everything, everything all, you know, is um, meaningless, et cetera, right? Um, I might as well, uh, you know, kill this starship captain. <laughs> um, like, just in the first, you know, three and a half minutes of Star Wars, right? Um, he, he demonstrates his, his Darth Vader-y nihilism, right? Um, then he continues with it for the first, at least, you know, two and a half episodes or something like that. But, so that's the, that's the thing that we bring up against this, the other side of Mahayana Buddhism, which is this radical, non-dual, um, con- uh, convi- well, con- conviction about the unknowability of, of reality, right? Um, and it, it's, a, it's been a balancing act for the entire history of Mahayana Buddhism and probably even before, right? Um, the, one of the arguments about the the origin of Mahayana Buddhism is that it arose exactly out of of some people going too far in the direction of of, uh, of explanation and you know categorical um, conceptual corralling of experience, right? Um, and it and it if you read the um, if you read the history of Buddhism after Buddhism landed in China, you know, like the, the basis of the Zen school were exactly those, those things. They, you, they held up this non, non-dualism, and at the same time, they, they had all these prescriptions about how to practice and how to, um, what the, you know, what the, um, the probable fruits of practice were, were going to be and how they would arise and how they would show up in, in the middle of your life and so on and so forth. Um, and and when Suzuki Roshi wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he said, he basically said, right at the beginning, he said, this is what's hard about Zen practice. It's not hard to sit Zazen, and it's not hard to get enlightened. What's hard is that we, we're constantly bringing up our explaining categorical agenda executing mind and we're letting it loose on our practice and and making a mess of things basically that's what he says that's what he says is hard about it and it's true it's that's what's hard about it right so i guess i would say what can you do about that right um i think the model The ideal model is something like this, right? So when you, you know, in every moment, you know, so we were all we were all sitting here, and um, sensations were arising, or thoughts were arising, and impinging on our consciousness, and sometimes we were aware of it, and sometimes we weren't. But in the moments that we were aware of it, um, there was this opportunity to to hold 
our explanations lightly and in the broadest possible context, right? Um, and in the and the most receptive possible context, and to be to be curious about them, both the explanations of the things that come in from the outside and the explanations of, of our response, right? And the the the, um, the 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 thoughts that arise, the emotions that come along with those thoughts, the tags, and so on and so forth. Um, so to to be as to, to hold all of that stuff in as, in as broad and spacious a context as possible and to allow some confluence of the information and energy that's, that's operating internally and the information and the, the energy that's coming in from outside to determine our next course of action. And then what do you suppose we should do if we screw it up? Yeah, exactly. Do the same thing again. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, that that that's what they call making your best effort on each moment. Um, that's the that's the, and that's the practice of being awake. Right. That's what it's that's what it's called. Um, and you don't have to believe me. Um, Dogen said it in the Fukanza Zangi and a whole bunch of other places. Suzuki Roshi says it in Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. So. Here's what I thought we could do about that, because um, that's about all I had to say about that.